Today, our show is sponsored by Nutrafol. 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. If you are among them, know that you're not alone and there is a solution you can trust to deliver results. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol. Nutrafol offers targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding through all stages of life. Healthier hair growth takes time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster growing hair in three to six months. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months of use. Nutrafol is physician-formulated to be 100% drug-free. They use medical-grade botanicals in consistently effective doses so you get the most reliable results. And no matter your stage in life, they have a solution. Nutrafol women's formulation is ideal if you're experiencing thinning hair loss caused by stress, dieting, overstyling, or environmental toxins. Their other formula, Women's Balance, is for additional hormone support for those with thinning hair through menopause. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code SELFIE to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com with the promo code SELFIE. Today's sponsor is EveryPlate. Initially, I thought meal kits had to be expensive, that they were kind of a splurge. But as it turns out, every plate is more affordable than groceries. Their quality ingredients come pre-portioned to help you save money and reduce food waste, you know, like the bag of spinach that I throw out every single week. You can skip the store and let every plate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a consistently low price. For me, in the summer, I'd rather be out enjoying the sunshine than cooking. Every plate helps me do just that. Simple, stress-free recipes come together in just six steps and are ready in about 30 minutes or less. You can choose between 17 recipes that change every week and swap proteins and sides to your liking, so you can switch up dinner routines however you want. Every plate helps me experience more of my favorite things in life by saving me time and money, which means more money towards vacations, concerts, the list goes on. You can choose from classic plate, veggie plate, family plate, and easy plate preferences to serve up crowd-pleasing meals night after night. Try every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering the code SELFIE179. Again, that's $1.79 per meal at everyplate.com with the code SELFIE179. Hey everyone, I'm Kristen Howerton, a writer and a psychotherapist. And I'm Rue Powell, an admitted workaholic and self-care Luddite. And you are listening to Selfie, a weekly podcast about women learning to take better care of themselves. We think self-care is important, but it can simultaneously be elusive. We don't lack information about it, but we don't always quite get there. So this podcast is dedicated to exploring different aspects of self-care, from the silly to the serious. We're looking at health, relationships, beauty, periods, and maybe a touch of the random. We also want to look at the hurdles we face that keep us from caring for ourselves like we should. To submit questions to me or Rue, or to Claire, our beauty expert, or BJ, our resident therapist, join us in our private forum by searching Selfie Podcast Community on Facebook. Hey guys, today we are going to be chatting with Dr. Sarb Jahal. He is an expert in emergency management and disaster psychology. He was actually one of the leaders of the um, response to COVID-19 in his home country of New Zealand. And he has written a book recently that is called Steady, A Guide to Better Mental Health Through and Beyond the Coronavirus Pandemic. So he and I are chatting about um, just the mental health pandemic that is following um, 
the pandemic. Um, and he has some really interesting things to talk to us about in terms of managing our anxiety as we're coming out of a pandemic. And then BJ and I are talking about teaching self-compassion to our kids. But first up, I'm going to do a self-care check-in with Rue. Rue, how's it going? Hi, good. Um, my self-care is going well in that I have been really focusing on simplifying certain areas of my life. And I guess I decided this week that I was going to pare down my wardrobe, mm. um, which I feel like, you know, we kind of all had this pandemic wardrobe yes. of sorts. And yes, now, we did. And now maybe that Zoom uniform isn't quite cutting it. Uh-huh. And now I want to go out in public. And also, it just feels like a way to – I mean, I dress a little funky sometimes. I feel like it's a way to express myself. So I like to keep things pared down, but I like to keep them pared down to really interesting things um, on occasion. That sounds weird. But, like, I like having a couple plain white T-shirts, but also – a very weird pair of cargo pants or whatever. So I was ruthless and I went through my closet and I cleared out a bunch of stuff to, you know, donate or, or give away to my kid's babysitter or, or whatever. And um, I feel lighter because it is minimizing deci- decision fatigue. Yes. And I feel like I can – like I'm at the point where I, I recognize what brands – just don't work with either my body or my lifestyle. So um, if I can't throw it in the washer and the dryer, for the most part, I really don't want to mess with it unless Mm -hmm. it's like a really nice blouse or obviously like a blazer or something. But there are some t-shirt brands where you toss them in the washer and they kind of fall apart. Yes. So or or the brand just doesn't quite fit my body type and I'm not willing to go get it tailored. So Mm -hmm. I'm down to maybe shopping three or four different brands and that's it. And I'm Super okay with it. I feel really good about it. And my closet is cleaner. That's awesome. Okay. I do need to know what's your like top t-shirt brand. Oh, okay. T-shirt. Um, so I will say this. I really like for just a plain kick around the house t-shirt, although that's not necessarily true. I will wear a really nice blazer. Mm-hmm. Like a, a very cool double-breasted plaid blazer. Um, over a white Hanes tee and jeans. Mm, um, that's a good look. And the Hanes tee is like $8 off Amazon. I don't want to think about how it was sourced. I'm not going to think about that right now. Yeah. Um, I also like Everlane. Yeah. I love a white pocket tee, so I mm-hmm. love Everlane. And then for a V-neck tank, I like the Madewell Whisper. But I yeah. don't like the Madewell Whisper tee. I don't feel like it's Madewell. But the ironically, but the V-neck tank top is very nice. I really like, I actually like the Madewell V-neck tee and tank. I'm a fan of both. Yes. And I, sometimes I don't, sometimes I don't like the way my arms look in a lot of sleeveless shirts, but I, I like that sleeveless shirt for, for whatever reason. I know it's weird. I completely agree. It's flattering. If you had to shop clothing shop, and you could only go for three brands for the rest of your life. What would they be? <laughs> Probably this is a, a random pull because I don't really shop there that much. But it, like, if money was no object, I would probably choose Banana Republic because I really like their clothes and mm-hmm. they're really well made. And then I would probably choose Madewell. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, and then maybe Target. <laughs> Probably yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. What about you? 
Um, I would go Levi's. Okay. Because I, I think I wear I wear my go to jeans are Levi's jeans and yeah. I like their jackets too. Um, and then maybe Everlane for some staples. Or if I wanted to be super fancy, Vince. Okay, no, okay, we'll go Everlane. Everlane. And then I would also do uh, I am too old to be saying this, Urban Outfitters. See, I wouldn't pick them because I feel like they are disposable clothes. Like they fall apart. Urban Outfitters? Yeah, I do. No, really? Yes, I feel like a lot of those brands are not super great. Well, okay, so very particular, the the BDG brand by yeah. Urban Outfitters. Yeah, yeah. I do like that brand. I like um, – I really like their super high-waisted baggy wide leg jeans and these like chore jackets that they make that are big and oversized. Um, but also, I recognize that I am 38 and their target market – and I, I know because I looked this up, is 18 to 28. So I really have no business shopping there, but I'm still doing uh, it. I think you can. And you know what? I changed my answer from Banana Republic to Anthropology. I don't know why. I didn't, oh, why would yes. I, why would I go banana instead of anthro? Like, what's and wrong you know with what? me? And you uh, do like that chic boho look very well. I am thinking about – do you remember that dress that you wore to the Iris Awards – that was from Anthro, and it was like lace, and some parts were see-through. Yes, I do. I love that dress. I love that dress. That is a, a Byron Lars dress. He's a black designer. He is such an amazing designer, and I know uh, I know this sounds so insanely privileged, but his dresses are they are designer cocktail dresses. You know, like they're mm-hmm. like really nice, and they're like three hundred dollars, which for a designer dress. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. But they always sell his stuff there. A lot of times you have to get it online, but I really, really like – I really like his dresses. And they're – I don't know. They're like textural and kind mm-hmm. of like like multi-fabrics. Um, and he really knows how to like dress a woman's shape. But yeah, I really like his dresses. I know which, I know exactly which dress you were talking about. That was the most I've ever spent on a dress. I think you got your mileage out of it, right? Because you wore it to a few things. I've worn it a ton. Yes. Yeah. A ton. That's I, I'll do – if I like something a lot but it's expensive, I'll just try to calculate cost per wear. Yes. You know and I, mean? I definitely you- got I, – I definitely got got my money's worth from that. And I still have it. Like, it, I mean – and it's not – and it doesn't go out of style. You know what I mean? Like, I don't look at that and, and think like – Oh bummer! I wore that five years ago. Like I would still wear it if if it right. fit, which right. it does not. <laughs> like like the shirt that I bought during the cold shoulder phase, I can yes. no longer wear. Right. Yeah. Um. Actually, and if I were to pick two pricier brands to go along with it, I would do Theory for blazers and suits mm-hmm. because they're. I feel like they're really well well made, and sometimes they have these like just cooler colors and patterns. And then um, Vince. Because I love their I love their blouses. I and love Vince too. I buy those off Poshmark and at like I think like a, a Vince blouse is maybe two hundred and seventy five dollars, and then I'll buy it off Poshmark for forty, yeah. and I feel really good about that. So yeah, this is fun. We should pull. <laughs> we should pull the Facebook group. I know we really should. We really should. All right, what do you have for two thumbs up? Wait, wait. You have to give me your check-in. Oh, gosh. I forgot. I was just excited about that. Well, I need to do what you just did. I really need to pare down my wardrobe. So I, you need to hold me accountable to that because I haven't done it at all. 
And, you know, in addition to things not fitting post-pandemic, also just things have gone out of style, you know? Fair, yeah. I mean, I still have some cold shoulder dresses hanging in my closet. Like, let's yeah, be honest. Those. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I need to go through my clothing. Um, so, self-wise, this week I did a, a number of food testing panels. I did food Ooh. testing. It's interesting. I did it with my with my allergist, and he did patch testing, mm-hmm. and he found that I am mildly allergic to rice. What? Right? Rice? No. Which. I'm gluten-free. I eat rice every day. Every day. So that's what he found doing a skin test. Then I did the Everly or Everly Well. Is that what it's called? Everly Well. Let me look. Yeah. Every Well. Everly Well. Oh, my gosh. Good Lord. Um, This is not a sponsored (laughs) product. (laughs) I paid cash money for it, and it's not cheap. Um, but I did Everly well. But after, it's interesting because after I purchased the test, I then did a little more research. And there are some people that think the science on their food testing is a little fuzzy. And it's not testing for allergies so much as um, like sensitivities. You sure. Know. Um, but that one showed me to be sensitive to almonds and eggs. So like if I had to name three foods that are absolute staples in my diet, it would be rice, eggs, and almonds. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's, you know what's interesting is that and and this is just from being an allergy mom for so many years is yeah. that um cuz my girls have to do the skin test and the blood test and the reason why they do both is because neither is very accurate. Right. Um they're both kind of guesses. Yes. And so uh, the aggregate of the two combined hopefully paints a better picture. So a skin test might say that my kid is super allergic to something, but then they try it orally and they're fine. Right. And some and sometimes vice versa too. So honestly, I still think the only foolproof way of knowing whether or not you're sensitive to something is doing an elimination diet. Yeah. yeah. And that sucks. It does. So I've been off rice for a week and I do feel a little bit better. Um, I just got the almond news actually today, so I'm going to go off almonds, which is – I I drink almond milk every day. I mean, you know, if you're gluten-free, almond flour and rice flour is what everything is made of. Right. Because you can't – can you have oat milk? Um, yes, I was fine on oat. I was okay on oat. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'm going to be oat milking it up over here. Mm. Maybe some cashew milk. Get a little crazy. Mm, have mm. some oat milk. I don't know. But Yeah. Um, but you know, it feels good that I'm like being proactive and pushing forward and, yeah. you know, doing And honestly, stuff. if eliminating those things from your diet makes you feel so much better, then yeah. it was worth it. Yeah. We'll see. All right. What do you have for two thumbs up? Ooh, I have, well, first of all, those of you who don't know, need to know that Amazon has an FSA, HSA section. So anything that is eligible for you to use your you know, flexible savings, health savings account card. Um, it's like labeled. Oh. And sunscreen is under that. Stop. Why am I not doing this? Right. So I, I definitely do that. I pay with my HSA. But this particular one is also covered, and it's the Kula Setting Spray. So you're supposed to wear – you're supposed to apply sunscreen every two hours. Yeah. And none of us do that. No. So I put – like sunscreen on in the morning, makeup, and then I'll do this Kula setting spray that has SPF 30. And then I will 
keep it in my bag. And, you know, if I'm touching up my makeup or if I put a little more sunscreen on, I'll just spray that right on top. And it's like a, it's like a setting spray, but it has SPF. So I'll spray my face just a couple times and feel better about SPF coverage. So I really like it. And you can use your flexible savings account, I think, to pay for it. It's or at least it's labeled as such. So well, then, yeah, I would think you could. This looks like the perfect solution for when you're sitting at a pool. And, yes, you know, and you're sweating, and you can just spray it on your face every hour. Right, right. I like it better than the powders because with the powders, I feel like you don't know how much is coming out. Yes, you know I those agree. mineral brush powders. No, I completely agree. I have those, and I always am just like, ah, just taking my life in my own hands. I don't know if this worked or not. Right, right. I have no idea. So I very much like that, and then I also like its Julep Eyeshadow One Hundred One, and um. Uh, I feel like I do makeup well. I feel mm-hmm. like I can contour if I need to. Um, really? I did not know this about you. You can contour. I can, yeah. Yeah. I, I you can't. Know, I can't. Well, I, I do it because I have such a – like my my cheeks eat up my entire face. So I feel like I need to contour like a little bit. But um, what I'm really bad at is eyeshadow where it's like, oh, you just blend this and you put this mm-hmm. in the crease and you put this up here. Yeah. I still – like it doesn't matter how many TikTok videos I watch. I cannot do eyeshadow better than my 11-year-old. But these eyeshadow sticks, I find that I do like a cream a little bit better. Mm. And these are nice because you can just put this all over your eye and be done. Huh. Or if you want to add one more color, then you can you know go uh-huh. crazy and add two. Um now, do you use these on the bottom of your eye too, like as an eyeliner? Yeah, yeah. You can just I just like smudge it underneath right. also, and they're really easy, and they just kind of sit in my, you know, my makeup bag, and they're they're very portable, and you don't need, yeah. like I can just blend with a with my finger. Yeah. Oh, these are fun. And, and, I'm gonna order these. Yeah. I like this bronze color. It also has like a little a smudger at the bottom too, so if mm-hmm. you want to smudge out your eye, you can. Oh, those are really fun. Yes. How about you? Okay. Mine are two things that I'm excited that are at Target. So first of all, Grove Collective is at Target now. Have you seen that? Were you ever a Grove Collective user? Um, Yes, because I had – I was the one that signed up. You know how they would give you like this really amazing gift when you sign up? Always, And then all of a sudden you have just like a ton of, you know, Mrs. Meyers hand soap. Yes, yes. I'm familiar with Grove Collective. So I love them, um, but I really like that they're at Target. I use Grove cleaning products exclusively. So they have – and I'm sure I've talked about it before on here. uh, But, you know, it was just if you wanted to use it, you kind of had to get a membership. And, you know, some people don't like having memberships. But – let me just say, they're, they have glass bottles that are color-coded on the bottom. So they have like a silicone thing that goes um, that keeps it protected as well, and they're color-coded. And then you buy these little um, concentrated cleaning things um, so that you just – you pop the top off and pour it in, and they're really small. Nice. And then you fill it up with water. So you're not, you know, rebuying like your multi-surface cleaner. You're not rebuying sure. a spray bottle every time. Um, and so I love it because you can keep a ton of it on hand and it stores really small because it's just these right. little capsules of the concentrate that you then mix with water in the same um, glass container. So it's good for the planet. And then, you know, like I said, I mean, I'm the same way with my shampoo bars. I love when I can store things small, mm-hmm. you know, because we've got a lot of people living in this house. 
Uh, but anyway, I, I cannot recommend enough their cleaning products. They smell really good. They, um, like I was I just going to ask how really, they smell. Oh, they smell really good. They have um, two different scents. I want to say one is like basil and one is like like citrusy. Mm. Um, orange and rosemary, that's one of them, and lavender and thyme. And then they have unscented. And it's really inexpensive too. Um, so you can get like their concentrates are two for $7. So that's about $3.50 for a whole bottle. You know, yeah, it, it makes a whole bottle. Um, yeah, I really like them, but I was super pleased to see them at Target. I was just walking through Target the other day and saw them, and I was like, I'm gonna oh look gosh. for them at Target. Yay. Um, and then, okay, so funny, a previous guest of ours, um, my friend Kevin, he told me about these nail gels that are like nail stickers. It's called Dashing Diva, which is also at Target. And last week I talked what? about a nail polish I'm liking, but these are interesting. They, they're not press on nails. They're just like, it's almost like you're sticking a sticker of gel nail polish on your nail. Yeah. They're stickers, huh? And they last a really long time and they look like you had like a professional manicure and they have, you can get them in solid colors, but then you can also get them in like designs, you know, in patterns and stuff. So they're, they're kind of fun. Do, how is it? Is it a pain in the ass to apply? No, it's really not. And there's nothing to dry. Like you, you literally stick them on your nail. I mean, it's, there's a learning curve. You stick them on your nail and then you kind of fold it over your nail and then you file it mm -hmm. so that it is the, the right length of your nail. So they have all these different sizes. You pick the right size and then you're just filing the edge off and then it's, it's there. It's done. Oh, nice. So you don't have to pre-cut. Uh-uh. No. Oh, that no. is nice. I, I think I'll try this. This yeah. looks cool. I really like this. We've talked a lot about skincare on the show and specifically tretinoin. If you're not familiar, it's a retinoid, which is an active vitamin A derivative that's used to improve the texture, tone, and appearance of the skin. Today's sponsor, Dear Brightly, has a product called Night Shift, and tretinoin is the active ingredient in Night Shift. This is the only FDA-approved retinoid for treating photoaging, which is premature skin aging due to long-term sun exposure. Tretinoin stimulates collagen production to prevent and treat signs of premature skin aging from years of sun damage, things like fine lines and wrinkles, dark spots, uneven skin tone, and big pores. Tretinoin can only be acquired through a prescription, but it's 20 times more potent than the over-the-counter retinol products. It's one of the most well-researched ingredients with over 50 years of research behind it for both acne and photoaging. I had a chance to try Night Shift and I'm really liking it. I have the unfortunate experience of having both breakouts and wrinkles at the same time, and it's great for both. I have seen my fine lines decreasing. I've seen my skin tone looking better, and it feels really nice. If you've used an over-the-counter retinol before, you know it's really great, but a dermatology-grade retinoid is even better. Night Shift is their dermatologist-formulated serum that's tailored to your skin by doctors online. Dear Brightly works by you first of all starting by sharing your skin story with them, then a doctor evaluates your skin and your skin history. They then tailor your formula and write a prescription, if applicable, and your tailored serum will be delivered to you in the mail. It's super simple and easy. Head to www.dearbrightly.com and enter the promo code SELFIE to get 15% off your first order, which is their very best offer anywhere. That's S-E-L-F-I-E to get 15% off your first order at dearbrightly.com. 
So when I was a teen learning to shave my legs, my mom did not do me any favors by buying me really cheap disposable razors. If you grew up in as a teen in the 90s, you know the ones, and they left nicks and cuts all over me when I was trying to shave. So With two girls learning how to shave their legs right now, I am committed to making sure that they have good quality razors. Guys, I was probably well into my 30s before I realized the difference a quality razor makes. Today's sponsor is Athena Club. They have great razor kits that we have been using in our house for a couple months. The razor blades are awesome. They are surrounded by this water-activated serum that has shea butter and hyaluronic acid, so you get a silky smooth shave that actually leaves your skin soft and hydrated as opposed to stripped dry. And their blades are spaced out to let hair and shave cream pass through easily so you don't have to make a ton of passes going over and over the skin to remove the hair. Fewer passes means less irritation to your skin, which cuts down on razor burn and ingrown hairs. The razor kit is only $9 with free shipping and it comes with two blade cartridges, a cute little magnetic hook for your shower storage, and your choice of a handle color. I personally chose the coral. But what I really like about it is they have a ton of different colors, black, white, pastel neon. So if you have a big family like mine, everyone can have the razor in their own color so you don't get them confused. What I also love about Athena Club, you guys know I love automating things. You never have to worry about dull blades because they send refills on your schedule. You just choose how often you want them and they will send them automatically with free shipping. I would also highly recommend their cloud shave foam too. It's insanely thick and stays on while you shave so you don't have to reapply. It leaves your skin feeling very moisturized. It's really, really good. If you want to try a great quality razor that cuts down on the wastefulness of disposable razors, try Athena Club Razor Kit. You can get 20% off your first order at athenaclub.com with the promo code SELFIE. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with the promo code SELFIE for 20% off. And now a quick sponsor break. Most of us could use more energy in our day, but caffeine can only do so much. And some of us, like myself, don't even do caffeine. At some point, we have to look at the root causes of our fatigue. It turns out there are two main factors in low energy. Those are chronic stress and a lack of nutrition. Stress and nutritional deficits can lead to low energy, bad mood, and all kinds of long-term issues. Organifi creates delicious superfood blends that address both of these problems. They use adaptogenic herbs to help balance cortisol levels associated with stress and make it easier to add more nutrients into your day. You simply add a scoop into water or a plant-based milk of your choice, and you can have a natural boost any time of the day. It's full of carefully picked adaptogens, fruits, vegetables, medicinal mushrooms, and more. Now this word adaptogens, you might be wondering what that means. These are herbs and mushrooms that literally help you adapt to the stress in your life. They balance hormones, they promote a state of calmness, and help you get back to that baseline faster than usual. Organifi specializes in creating delicious superfood blends powered by these. If you're looking for an easy way to support your amazing body, I highly recommend trying Organifi. You can check out the products in the Organifi shop at Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-N-I-F. I.com. Go to Organifi.com and use the code SELFIE for 15% off any item in the store. Again, code SELFIE at Organifi.com for 15% off anything in the store. All right, well, I'm excited today to be talking with Dr. Sarb Jahal. He is the author of the new book, Steady, A Guide to Better Mental Health Through and Beyond the Coronavirus Pandemic. 
Um, he's also an expert in emergency management and disaster psychology. Um, and I am very interested to talk to him about the mental health crisis that the pandemic has wreaked upon us. Um, Dr. Jahal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Kristen. It's good to be here. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your background and how that, you know, kind of unique background led you to write a book on mental health and the pandemic. Okay. Um, so I'm a university dropout. Uh, I went <laughs> I went the first time to university after I finished school uh, and I did not like it. I did not enjoy the experience at all. And so um, I was doing something that I wasn't passionate about because of various different reasons. But I ended up starting again the following year doing psychology, which I'd kind of stumbled across uh, in the previous year and thought, hey, this looks quite interesting. I'll see where this takes me. And the journey took me on to kind of getting through my degree and then going on to a PhD and then leading uh, a research project um, with about five different professors, but really looking at public mental health. And at that time, we were looking at what occupational stress was, because this is in 1997 back in the UK, and really occupational stress was known, known as malingering. It, mm -hmm. it wasn't really like a thing. Uh, mm -hmm. People didn't believe um, that people experienced anything like occupational stress like they do you know, now in 2021. We recognize that this is a real risk for people in the workplace. And so that's where I really got passionate about thinking about, well, what is an individual's experience like across the whole nation? How can we make sense of that? And then design tools and policies in order to protect people's health. So that was one really big mark for me. But I also got interested in kind of individual stories and how it is that they coped themselves and how it is that, you know, perhaps I could help them or, or psychology could help them. So I retrained as a clinical psychologist as well. Mm. Um, in London, and I, I work with um, kids and um, all kinds of different kind of client groups, and they got much more involved through a series of circumstances in advising organisations and government policy around protecting people in times of crisis and specifically disaster. So the first one I was really involved in is back in 2005, 2006, I don't know if you recall, bird flu, H5N1 influenza was the thing that everybody was worried mm -hmm. about, that yeah. the next pandemic would be that. So really that's where my journey started in mm. that sort of crossover of disaster psychology and emergency management. And so then you find yourself, you know, making decisions, um, in New Zealand, as the as you know, COVID nineteen spread there, and looking back, like tell us about that experience. Yeah, so I you know, I watched the news quite carefully. Started picking up in December last mm -hmm. year um, that there was some kind of new strange sickness being detected in China in Wuhan, and then really started thinking quite carefully about well, what happens if. Mm -hmm. Um, because we had all, all been trained and waiting for if, but we, we hadn't really expected with the last one, which was the H1N1 swine flu, was that um, it, it took a different shape um, to what we had been expecting the next pandemic to be. And I was worried that this was going to do the same thing. It was a coronavirus. We hadn't really thought about that. It had a different incubation period. So I started just kind of playing through in my mind, how people might react to this. And then I, I held, I think my first YouTube live stream on the topic was at the end of January. 
Uh, and I'd written a few articles in the New Zealand press about, you know, this is what was going on and here are the psychological implications as far as we know. And then I started getting involved in March last year um, in providing some advice and shape to the government around what that psychological reaction might look like and then mm-hmm. what, what they could do in order to help people get through that. Yeah. Um, and as you know, it's so interesting because I think the experience of the pandemic varies, obviously, according to privilege and according to life experience, but it really, I think, varied according to where people lived. How do you think the pandemic was experienced differently for people in New Zealand versus, you know, people in the States? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think um, all of those things that you mentioned, but also the there are a couple of other things I think that are important. Uh, one was... Um, you know, how the virus traveled mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. how it arrived in different countries. And that was um, due to various different policies around things like border openings yeah. and, and, and other parts of that. So I think that the, the really big difference that made um, an impact for how different countries experienced this was leadership. Yeah, And I think that that's, that's perhaps been acknowledged, but we perhaps lose sight of the fact that actually how decisions are made and how quickly they're made, how timely they're made, and the balance between trying to protect people, but also understanding that the economy is important, but the economy doesn't exist without people, Mm -hmm. right? So, and I think that that's one of the big differences, as well as kind of like how the virus spread and people's attitudes towards things like taking personal protective measures like a mask and how people... um, react to mandates mm-hmm. versus being mm-hmm. asked to do this voluntarily yeah. how people how people are concerned about you know seeing people that they love in their communities but perhaps on the other side of the country what their attitudes are towards uh, restrictions around that all of these things come into play i think size of country also comes into play you know mm-hmm. new zealand we have one kind of jurisdiction right we don't have states we have mm-hmm. one government we have provincial local governments but it's much easier to organized than something mm-hmm. like the United States or Canada or places where you have um, decision making that's kind of taking place over several different areas and lots of different governments. And then you have a federal organization on top of that. You know, yeah. Australia has a similar organization. The, U- the EU has a similar organization. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of things that come into play, I think, as well as kind of the individual and, and you know, how nations maybe react to different things depending upon whether they've got an individualist or a collective kind uh-huh. of attitude to yeah. ha- how you deal with things. Yeah, it was an it was a fascinating study of both politics and you know sociology psychology um, in the ways that people responded. Um, both you know as you said, kind of systemically and individually, it was it was eye opening <laughs> to me. Mm. Um, and my kids and I have had many conversations about collectivism versus individualism and, you know, the benefits and the problems therein. Um, you know, when we talk about the mental health crisis that the pandemic has wrought, what are you seeing? You know, I think what I see here depends upon where I'm looking. You know, mm-hmm. my, my, my direct experience, as you say, is very privileged. I'm here in New Zealand. We have no COVID-19 in the community. We have had um, small outbreaks every now and again, but we've managed to get on top of those. So 
Uh, what I've been saying here is actually New Zealand's biggest challenge during the pandemic has been the absence of the virus rather mm. than the presence of the virus and being actually quite off time and off experience with what other places in the world are going through. Mm -hmm. now, now, I have family in London, in the UK. I have family in the US. I have family in Canada. I have family in India. I have them dotted all around the world. So I, I hear a bit from them and I, and I look at the media all the time. And what I see is that, you know, we have the trauma of going through and being infected or being worried about our loved ones or being someone who is witnessing and trying to take care of people going through this and trying to comfort their families too, right? So we have many layers of trauma, I think, serious mental health impacts, which we don't know what the impact of that is going to be. But we can make some educated extrapolations of things that we already know. So I'll give you an example. In New Zealand, we had a series of earthquakes in 2010, 2011, which went over, you know, about an 18 month period that these were really quite terrifying for the people in Christchurch and Canterbury and that district in the South Island, New Zealand. Small potatoes, you might think, compared to what's been going on globally, but it gives us some clues as to what happens and is happening now in the US and in the UK, I'm seeing is that those people who are burnt out and who have been traumatized by caring for others mm -hmm. leave the caring professions okay mm. they, they they say look this is i can't deal with this anymore this is something that means that i'm actually going to have to change how i live my life uh, and so this is important this is incredibly um this is a big risk for our health systems and our protection systems because we have a peop people with a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience who are basically going to say, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So that's one aspect of yes. it. Then we have the wider population. And we know that actually for a single kind of like crisis event, about 80% of people get through a disaster without any kind of external assistance so long as they can get the social support that they need and they get their basic needs met. Hmm. Now, if you think about those two things and you think about how the pandemic has affected them, so long as they can get the social support that they need, we've been asked to isolate at home. We've yeah. been asked not to see people. Yeah. We've been asked to connect with people, perhaps in ways that we have we don't feel particularly comfortable with. And perhaps we might do them one and once in a while, but this is all the time for yeah. at least a period of time. Yeah. And then can you get your basic needs met, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've lost your job, if you're not in a position where you can claim whatever kind of income support is available from your government at state or national level, then this is going to be a big pinch. We see that the middle class in India has been absolutely decimated by the coronavirus pandemic because mm -hmm. middle class in India actually means that you have savings. And so they've actually had to wipe out their entire savings and had to move from where they are. So the middle class has been drastically affected as well as, of course, you know, all the people below them uh, in terms of income level who have had just the precariety of lives just upended again. And so we see that we have these kind of direct impacts of the fear of the pandemic and what it might do, the impact that it has upon those people who are trying to care for them. And then now we have the secondary impacts that we're starting to see place. You know, here in New Zealand, one of our biggest income earners for the country is tourism. Yeah. And we have, we have closed borders, right? So we have thousands of people who have been made jobless 
and it's a small economy. So what else can you do? There's been a lot of government input in terms of wage subsidies. But we're now at the point where we're having to think seriously about, well, what does this mean for people's livelihoods? Yeah. And I think that that is the wave that we are at the front edge of now. And that's going to have a really big mental health impact. It's not the pandemic itself, but it's mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. redistribution of opportunity that it's going to create and have. So for some people, they're going to do okay out of that. And we've seen that. We've seen that the middle classes and the upper classes, they've had savings. They've actually accumulated more savings. They're in possibly a better position. But we've seen a huge number of people who are going to be disadvantaged and continue to be so. So we have to be really mindful about the mental health impacts of these changes and opportunities in people's yeah. lives that, that could go on for years. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, people are feeling burnt out. They're leaving They're leaving helping professions. And then, you know, I'm a therapist here in the States. We are everyone I know has a waiting list. You know, people can't get in to see a therapist. Um, There's so many people seeking help. And therapists are, you know, lightening their loads, um, because they're feeling their own burnout and stress. Um, So, you know, it's difficult, because it's harder for people to find care. I, I agree with you. I think that we've got this kind of double whammy of people shrinking down their exposure to doing this kind of hard work from a therapy, from a therapist's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yet we have increasing demand as people understand that their lives may have been changed. And, and I think that actually one of the things that this raises is that therapy is not necessarily the answer when people's livelihoods or their ways of living are affected. Mm-hmm. Actually, The lens through which to look at this that I've been recommending, that others have been recommending, is that you look at solving people's problems of living. Yeah. Once you start tackling problems of living, then the mental health impacts then start to fall away. Yeah. And and as you know, as a therapist, it's like the most difficult position to be in is when you are trying to help someone through their journey of a difficult part of their life where they have no influence mm-hmm. over anything that is changeable, right. that they can make their situation better. So really the, the, the task then of people outside of the therapy world, those people who can adjust those parameters of living, like incomes, like opportunities, like having decent places and safe places to live, like safe travel between different zones that people can connect socially again. All of these things need to be balanced with that protection um, mandate that they have to look after their population. Yet, these are the things that will help people to adjust and feel better, as well as providing those opportunities for livelihood. Yeah, absolutely. We talk on the show a lot about just the aspect of, because, you know, we talk about self-care, but community care is such a big aspect of self-care, you know, and if people are not resourced then, you know, all of our self-care conversations are just conversations of privilege. Um, you know, if people don't have their basic needs met or, you know, aren't able to make a living or be with loved ones, you know, all those kinds of things. Absolutely. That's the bottom line. That is the most fundamental foundation for any kind of well-being conversation. Yeah. And if that's not in place, it all falls over. Yeah. Right? You, can build, you can build something for a little while, but it's not stable. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, for those of our listeners who are finding themselves in a state of heightened anxiety post-pandemic, 
what are ways for people to deal with anxiety and uncertainty? Yeah. So uh, what I've been recommending people to do is really building structure back in their lives. Um, And that sounds like it might not do a lot, but what we know is that actually people's patterns around the basic things that they do in order to keep themselves well, like sleeping, like eating, like social contact, have become a bit ad hoc, or they have changed in a way that isn't particularly helpful and isn't producing the results that they wish them to. So really thinking about the process of how do I get a routine back in my life where I can take care of the responsibilities that I have in order to try to get an income and look after my kids and and be a good parent and look after myself, all those things, but also really tackling the fundamentals and getting the rhythm back into life. So that really is one of the things around structure is that for a lot of people, we've lost the rhythm of what a usual common life looks like. And I think it'll take quite a few people a while to get that rhythm back in place again. Yeah. So that's one of the things I think is really important is that getting that kind of community level rhythm and being able to support each other in terms of, well, here we we are, we find ourselves in this life. What's the drumbeat now? Because we've been at this kind of like high alert drumbeat and rhythm for quite a long time. For us to step away from that and to find another rhythm, we may have to experiment a little bit Mm -hmm. before we actually stumble across what's working for us. So what I've been encouraging people to do is to do things like, you know, make sure you program in those social activities. Make sure you program in that self-care because you know what it's like, Kristen. When we get to a situation where we're in that exhaustion funnel, where we've got so much going on, you know, all the things that replenish us and nourish us then become nice-to-haves rather than must-haves. Yeah. They slip off the agenda. And so what I've been saying is that that is a vital part of your rhythm and a vital part of your structure and routine that keeps your vitality, right? So you need to get that back into your life. And it, it isn't selfish. It isn't mm-hmm. a privilege to be able to do that. It's actually necessary to be human. Yes. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. In your book, you talk about um, something else that I think is fascinating, which is the way that our brain pairs worry with positive outcomes. Talk to Mm. me about that connection and what we can do about it. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of basic function of our brains is that when we have a, we're essentially problem solving machines. Okay. So we have something comes up and our brain says, right, okay, here's something I can get my teeth into. I'm going to be thinking about this all the time until you come to a solution. Mm -hmm. And so what it does is it just kind of repeats it on your visual spatial kind of linguistic scratch pad and says, hey, remember, you haven't come up with a solution to this problem yet. So here it is again, just in case you've forgotten. And so what we do then, this is called worrying. And we think, okay, so I don't have a solution to this problem. I'm going to really think about this (laughs) a lot in order for me to come to a solution for this problem, because that will make me feel better and a solution will come. Yeah. Yeah. And so what our brain does is says, you know, we may come to a solution right? As a result of doing that, maybe one time out of five, let's just say, for example, we come to a solution. Your brain says, hey, that's a hit rate high enough for us to pair now a problem 
with this intense thinking and turning over in your mind until you come with a solution.、Mm. So this is why we have this kind of positive association with, with I've got a problem. I'm now going to do this worrying thing, this thing of turning this thing over in my mind and not letting myself forget about it. Because one time out of five, I come out with a solution and I feel better. So this is what I'm going to do. And that's why we have this kind of like, oh yeah, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to worry about this. And time just flies when we're worrying, right? Yeah. It just kind of pushes everything else aside, and suddenly we find an hour's gone by, and we actually don't feel that much better because, let's say, four out of five times, nothing comes of it. But we're we're left with this. Oh, so now what do I do? And then your brain says, "Hey, you haven't finished finished solving this problem yet. <laughs> you can't stop thinking about this yet." So it keeps popping up. Comes up in your dreams. Comes up while you're eating your breakfast. Comes up when you're taking your kids to. Swimming or whatever it is, it's、mm-hmm. just there all the time. So that's why worrying has this kind of positive association in our brain because it might lead to a solution and make you feel better. But actually, most of the time, it may not. That resonates so much. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you're describing exactly what my brain does.、Um, how do we get ourselves out of that loop? Sure. So one of the things that you can do. Is you can find a parking space for your thoughts, so they're、mm-hmm. not circling around in your brain looking、mm-hmm. for that parking space where the solution is. What you can do to your brain is say, "Hey, thanks for reminding me about this thing again. Now's not the time." So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write them down here. So by actively writing them down out on a piece of paper in a notepad, which you can just then leave for a little while,、mm-hmm. your brain says. Okay, you've taken care of it. You've solved the problem of me having to remind you about this because you've written it down. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a break for a bit now because I know you've got it there. And so what people do is that they experience freedom by doing this for a ten-minute task and telling yourself, "I'm going to worry my maximum capacity, and I'm going to write everything yeah. down yeah. that I can about this thing." And what people find is that they can't. Usually, fill ten minutes because <laughs> you reach the end. <laughs> you reach the end, and what happens is you suddenly detect it's like, "Hey, I'm back at the beginning. I'm cycling around、uh-huh, this thought again,"、uh-huh. and it sounded, it felt like it was a different thought, but it's not. It's the same one, but different words. Yeah. And so, what you do is you find that you actually what feels overwhelming、uh-huh. is not so bad when you write it down on a piece of paper.、So、it、true. might not be so easy to find the solution. You may、right. still need to try and do some work on that. But it, now, at least, it's not taking as much mental space with these、mm-hmm. thoughts, trying to find a parking space in your brain, not leaving any room for anything else go, to go on. Well, and I always love the, that whole concept of prescribing worry to yourself because it feels like you're taking some control over it. Like instead of it being passive, it's like, no, I'm actively going to worry <laughs> for this amount of time and then be done. But it sounds so paradoxical and and just. just、uh-huh. Straight out crazy, doesn't it? It's like it I'm going to tell, tell myself to max worry for、yes. a while and see what happens. But it works with all kinds of different things. When because the fear we have is that if I let myself go to the end point, it's going to be so overwhelming. I'm not going to be able to cope. And that's that's really what underlies this: is that we shield ourselves from so many things and we don't let ourselves examine them because of the fear of what if. And actually, if we allow ourselves, and at the same time, build our capacity for dealing with the emotional spike that we might get when we allow ourselves to enter into this process, what we find is that as we go through the process, the emotional spike a isn't as bad as we thought it would be, 
And B, doesn't last as long as we thought it would either. Yeah, I I think that is so true. I think it's so true. And just, it's such a small, easy step that anyone can take. You know, it's accessible. It's, you know, and any of us can take the time to sit down, write, capture. um, And it's so effective. Well, I feel like I can't let you go without asking you about sleep, because I know you've written about sleep as well. Um, And I know that what we're hearing from a ton of our listeners is that their sleep has been really impa- impacted after the pandemic. Mm. How can we get that back on track? Mm. I think one of the things that we can do is really take a bit of an audit as to not only what could help our sleep, but what are the things that we're doing that is harming our chances of getting a good night's sleep right now? Yeah. So, you know, one of those things might be, you know, what are we putting in our bodies and when are we putting them in our bodies? There are things like caffeine, right? Having caffeine after about two or three o'clock in the afternoon is probably a bad idea. And also watching out for where caffeine might be hidden in your diet, you know, so like green tea has caffeine in it, you know, mm-hmm. I'm having a cup now, right? But it's, um, it's really important for us to really take that order because it has mm-hmm. a half life of about six hours. So if you're having it after about three o'clock, yeah. and then you're trying to get to bed at about nine, 10 o'clock, yeah. it's, it's going to have an impact upon how easily you're going to be able to not only go to sleep, but how you stay asleep yeah. at night time as well, right? Because you're still processing. Absolutely. One of the other things. One of the other things is like, what times do you eat? You know, if you're eating late at night, what your body is doing is diverting all its resources to digestion, which actually, as a bodily process, is really noisy. Uh, if, if I can use that <laughs> word, there's there's a lot going on. So yeah. it's not just your tummy gurgling, but there's a lot of processes going on in your body, which means that actually you wake up a lot. You, you're kind of like you have this surface level sleep rather than deep sleep, which happens when you eat maybe three hours before you go and try to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So really thinking about those sorts of basic habits around how we nourish ourselves has a really big impact on sleep. But then there's all the other stuff like, you know, how our um, rhythm of our lives might mean that we're getting up later and then we're going to sleep later. And we now have become out of sync with how the sun moves mm-hmm. uh, across the sky. You know, that circadian rhythm that's mm-hmm. really basic to us. We underestimate how animal-like we are mm-hmm. in terms of what we need in order to get yeah. a good night's rest. That, I think biological. we really do underestimate yeah. that. Yeah. Absolutely. So yes, there's, there's, there's a whole load of things that we can do in order to take an order as to the things that aren't helping us, but also things that can help us, like sleeping in a really dark room mm-hmm. as much as possible, you know, because the light actually does, when we're trying to go to sleep, we can perceive it from behind our eyelids. It sounds crazy, but we can. Uh, but also, you know, what, what kind of light are we exposing ourselves to before we go to sleep? You know, we know that blue light is really good at keeping us alert. You know, that's what the sun beams down at us. But when we have that late at night, it's basically telling our brains, hey, don't switch off yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's stuff to do. And it takes a while for our brains to turn that down a notch once we stop exposing ourselves mm-hmm. to blue light. It doesn't happen, happen immediately, which is why the recommendation is, is, you know, for the hour or two before you go to bed, Try not to look at screens so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, look at paperback books, do other things. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a way of kind of signaling to your brain that this is now time to go to sleep and listen to your biological rhythm because I'm not going to give you any artificial stuff telling you that there's other stuff you need to do. 
Yeah. I mean, I definitely notice if I am scrolling on my phone right before bed, I don't sleep as well. And, you know, it's like that false sense of like, I'm relaxing, Mm -hmm. but it just, it does something to the brain. It's like you're hyperstimulated and then you can't sleep. Yeah. And you may not be even consciously aware of it, but but what you're doing is you're signaling to your brain that it's not sleep time because this blue light that I'm seeing means Uh that the sun is up essentially. Uh And so Uh it's not time to sleep because as far as I can tell, um, the sun is up, says your brain. So it's not going to start switching down. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's such a hard one to put away, but I think it's really important. Well, you can get kind of like blue light blocking glasses as well, which do a little bit, uh, they, they can have a little bit of a benefit. So if you, if yeah. you like were watching TV or something like that, you can also get blue, um, light, uh, screens for TV that block out part of that um, mm-hmm. electromagnetic spectrum, which is signaling to your brain to stay awake. So you can, there are technological solutions, yeah. but there's nothing better than actually just putting it away for yeah. a while. Getting a nice paper yeah. book. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been incredibly helpful. Um, I know your book, Steady, is available on Amazon, and we will link up to it. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at sabjohal.com. So that's S-A-R-B-J-O-H-A-L.com. And I'm sure you'll stick a link up to that too. We thank definitely will. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. Hey, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right, time to chat with BJ Hickman, our resident therapist. Hey, BJ. Hi, Kristen. Okay, so we had this question asked of us in our Selfie Facebook community. How do we teach self-compassion to our kids, especially a boy who's always on the move and thus resistant to mindfulness questions? Read the next part that she said. Oh, let me, I love this. I don't, she, you read it. She's sneaking know. in eve's-dropping yes. podcasts in the car. I love that. <laughs> totally. Because that's a good method. Let me just uh-huh. tell you, moms. It is. If you can turn something on in the car that you want your kids to hear, even if you're not talking about it and they're still doing other things, this goes back to what we talked about in another episode about how the way you get to kids is through the back door. Yes. So you don't talk directly to them when you really want them to hear you. Mm-hmm. You talk in their presence or you play a podcast in their <laughs> presence or you turn a television show on in their presence. And, you know, you got to remember the golden rule about te- talking to your kids about anything important for one thing is you never look them in the eye. <laughs> You want to have those conversations in the car when you're uh-huh. both facing forward facing or lying forward. in the bed at night. If they can, if you still get to cuddle with them sometimes, if they'll let you crash on the bed as they're falling asleep at night and you're in the dark and they can't see your face and you can't see theirs, you're more likely to get them to talk about things then. Even while you're fixing dinner, if they're sitting at the bar and fiddling with their phone or playing a game or working on homework at the dining table and you're not looking at them, you're cooking dinner and you top, you bring up a topic or you start talking to your husband about a topic um, or even get on the phone with your girlfriend, whatever it takes to bring it into the room, then it might spark conversation that yeah. if you sit down and say, okay, so I want to talk about self-compassion, you know, that's not going to happen. They're going to run. <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> Mentally. 
So, but I think probably the most important thing about self-compassion as a topic, just in general for your kids is what are you modeling for them? Oh my gosh. It's, it's so true. That's the, uh, that's top of line right there. Right. Yeah. I mean, are you talking to yourself in a loving and kind way out loud um, to them? Are you just, are you looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I can't wear that. I look fat. Mm-hmm. Um, or are you, oh God, I'm so stupid when you make a mistake. If your kids say that, you're all over it. But do you say that yeah. to yourself? And so the very most important thing our kids need is for us to model self-compassion for them. And that also looks like self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to choose ourselves in moments when our kids need us. Mm-hmm. Um, but saying, I, you know, I need this in order to give you what you need. I need to give myself what I need. And I want you to learn how to do the same and modeling that for them. Um, another thing is recognizing that every opportunity, most opportunities, I won't say every, choose them carefully, but choose opportunities to speak into those moments. Even if you get eye rolls, um, that you recognize your kids, not being compassionate towards others Mm -hmm. as well as themselves, Mm -hmm. because we project onto others our, what we struggle with are the criticism we have of others is usually a projection of the criticisms we have of ourselves. So for teenagers, especially this shows up in judgment of other kids. Yeah. And so when you see or hear your kids being judgmental of other kids, rather than say, Oh, don't talk like that. See if you can redirect it to tell me why you feel that way about that person. What do they do that makes you feel that way? Mm-hmm. And then draw that comment, get, go from a perspective of curiosity and bringing them into curiosity about why they say what they say. Are they just regurgitating something someone else said about someone? Or is it something they saw in this person? Get them to talk a little bit more about why they feel the way they feel and see if you can see parallels to the ways that you think they feel about themselves. And then say, so do you ever feel that way about yourself? Do you ever? Do you ever feel insecure in those moments or do you ever act that way? Do you ever see yourself mm-hmm. doing the kind of thing that that person's doing? And so by bringing the conversation yes. in that way, you're now having the opportunity to speak directly into their compassion for themselves as well as for others. Oh, that's so good. I love that. I love turning that around. <laughs> and then there's a book that I've talked about before and it's it, it's there's a whole website on self-compassion there's a book on self-compassion. There's a workbook called the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. It's got great tools for your own development of self-compassion. But I often have my parents who are using this workbook to look at opportunities for using some of those tools to have conversations with their kids about yeah. self-compassion. I just, I have a, a little booklet, a little book that I bought, um, I think it's Mari Andrews book and she talks about learning about her self-worth and I just put it in my granddaughters have a room at my house and they spend a weekend night with me every week and we tried to read together before we go to bed and I just put that book in their room because I thought we need to start just reading through this book because it's kind of a backdoor way of talking about identifying our worthiness and the ways that we 
choose to believe that we are not worthy, that we don't have self-worth, that we don't believe in ourselves. And she does it in a really artistic way. It's a lot of cute little pictures. And I think it'll be really good for them. They're almost 10 and almost 13. And they're both pretty grounded, but I see the almost 13 year old living very self-conspicuously. She's mm-hmm. beginning to notice mm-hmm. a lot of things and, and like working through those. Do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Working through that discomfort about herself mm-hmm. and even outside the presence of being in school. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, we, I, I look for every opportunity that I can as a grandmother to enter into these conversations too, mm-hmm. because I often can say things that their mom can't say mm-hmm. and they'll hear me say it where if mom or dad says it, they hear it, but it doesn't always have the same impact. And I can usually engage them in a, in a two way conversation when they might not with someone else. Yeah. And I'm going to just go back to the original poster. It is a great idea to find podcasts yes. and play them in the car. That All is a time. great idea. Like, <laughs> I am many times playing things for my kids that I want them to absorb, and they do. Yeah. They may not get all of it, but man, if they get 10%, that's something. That's something. Exactly. <laughs> we'll take it. And if you've got some good ones that you've been using, post them for us because I'd yes. love to know what they are. Yes. We should start a thread on that. That would be good. Yeah, for sure. Hey, thank you for joining us. Continue the self-care conversation with us on Instagram at at selfiepodcast and in the Selfie Podcast community group on Facebook. You can also visit our website to check out the resources we've talked about in each episode at selfiepodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to Selfie on iTunes so you can catch up with us next week. Take care. Take care.